Father, we approach You tonight with listening hearts. To hear, Lord Jesus, what You would speak to us. As we study through the rest of this, this great sermon that You gave, Father, I'll be, I'll be speaking and giving comment and thought background to what it was that Jesus said and and the context but Lord we ask that you would be speaking into our hearts it strikes me Father that I'll be the only one speaking during this time of of study um, at least among us here in the barn which means the vast majority of us here are listening And I think truly, Father, one of the great things about being together in a Bible study time like this is that as we listen to Your Word poured out, Your Spirit can begin to speak things to us that we might not have expected. And so, Father, I pray for a stillness in this place. And truly, Lord, for listening hearts to hear what You would speak. And, Father, I honestly pray if my take on... Matthew chapter 7 is, uh, is of a, a, a human thought and comes out of the soul at all, Father, that you would just kind of uh, cause everybody to be deaf to that, but absolutely um, open to and hearing to your Spirit speaking to us. Lord, we need to learn what it means for us to spiritually appraise all things, to be a spiritual people. And so we ask tonight you would lift us even more out of the flesh, out of the soul, and into the place of the Spirit where we can hear you, Lord. We rely on you and seek you now in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 7, tonight, you know they came from everywhere large crowds from the Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, even beyond the Jordan. They came in mass hearing about this this rabbi who did wonderful things and who spoke wonderful things, who was proclaiming a new kingdom. And they gathered there as he sat down on the hillside to address his disciples. So far in this Sermon on the Mount, as it's often called, we've heard Jesus speak of the blessedness of the life of a kingdom citizen. And He declared them to be salt and light. He took them into the heart of the law, comparing and contrasting the outward motions of giving and praying and fasting with the inward motivation of the heart toward these same things. Jesus invited His followers to leave behind worry, anxiety, and despair over what we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we'll wear, what our portfolios will do. Because our Heavenly Father knows everything that we need. This is the most comforting place in all of Scripture for me. Your Heavenly Father knows you need all these things. He knows before we know what's coming. What our needs will be. He knew what was going to happen in this economy long before any of us picked up on it. Even before McCain. You know, two years ago, or was it Obama? I'm not sure. One of them, I'm sure, came up with it ahead of time. But our Father knew. Ponder that for a moment. That Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, or is it Fannie Mac and Freddie Mae? I don't know. But 
The Lord knew. He knew. He wasn't shocked or surprised. He wasn't calling out to a, a gathering of angels, quick, we've got to come up with a plan. It struck me the other day, what would have happened had the members of the House and the Senate said, you know, why don't we all go home and spend the next 24 hours praying and fasting, and then let's come back and come up with a solution. Might have been a little different. Well, God knows ahead of time. And Jesus laid all these things out Matthew 6.33, he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, they'll be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now I imagine at this point in the sermon, there on that hillside in Galilee, that at this point it was so quiet you could hear a blade of grass fall. That as the people sat around, there was something about the words of, of this man Amazing! It was just captivating them as an audience as they listened to Jesus express these, these truths of the kingdom. He gets into matters and motives of the heart. He goes places that most rabbis didn't go. Most rabbis went to the place of commentary on Scripture. Most rabbis went to the place of your behavior and your actions and the outward motions. Jesus goes inward to the motivations and to the intentions. And honestly, if we take the Sermon on the Mount at face value, it's a little unnerving. Because we learn very quickly we are incapable of doing any of the things that he has asked his disciples, his kingdom citizens, to do. I realize my motives, my actions may look pretty good out here. I can fool most of the people most of the time. But my motives, that's a whole different thing. And Jesus is not through going deep. But what he does, and it amazes me, I think even more so in this last section, is he takes these deep places and these motives and he brings them to the surface in real and practical ways. We're going to talk about spirituality a little bit here. And usually when we talk about spirituality, we think of it in terms of some esoteric thing, some kind of mysterious, vague generality that no one really knows. What what does it mean to be in the Spirit? And Jesus takes spiritual things and makes them incredibly practical. This is how you do it. He's going to tell you exactly tonight. Here's how you do it. Here is how you walk in the Spirit. Here is how you understand and appraise things spiritually. I've said that a couple of times. Spiritually appraising things. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, which Jesus contrasts throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Human words versus spiritual words. He says, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And you may recall Jesus says, he who worships the Father must do so in spirit and in truth. You've got to enter in at the spiritual place to truly begin to understand and walk with the Lord. Now He's going to come get a hold of us in the flesh and He gets a hold of us in the soul. But we begin to hear Him and understand in the place of the Spirit. Paul writes, He who is spiritual and appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
So let me say again, spiritual does not mean obscure, esoteric, mysterious. And tonight I believe Jesus will show us. He gets into the place of just how practical a spiritual life life in Jesus truly is. He says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Talk about a practical truth. Now this, by the way, is not salvation that he's referring to when he says don't judge and you won't be judged. He's not talking about the judgment of salvation because remember, the Sermon on the Mount is spoken to kingdom citizens. It is spoken to the saved. This is the call of the life of the disciple who was already saved. So now when Jesus looks at you, looks at me and says, don't judge so that you will not be judged. He's not saying, hey, if you judge people, I'm going to come down and judge you, and and you can lose it. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something practical. We say what comes around, or what goes around, comes around. You judge people, guess what? It's coming back at you. He even says, by the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So if you're a judgmental person, guess what? You are going to be judged. That's just a very practical and real truth. It goes on in our world. Unfortunately, by our own human nature, we often rush to judgment, don't we? We tend to overlook our own blemishes, or worse, we excuse our own sin. And in the church, and among us as brothers and sisters, it is such an easy thing to slide into. Judging each other. Making assumptions about the motive of the heart of somebody else. I know what he's really thinking. I know what's really going on there. And the truth is, we probably don't. And we all do it. So don't think I'm pointing fingers at anybody. I am judge among judges, except for Dan. I know he doesn't judge anybody. In fact, they shake his head. No. I don't judge anyone at all, except possibly Stacy, who he's sitting beside. But Jesus is just saying there's a direct correlation between how we judge others and how we are judged ourselves. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, this is a marketplace example. An illustration that would be very clear for people to understand. He said in Luke 6.38, on Luke's taken the same thing, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, you Bible students may recall this. This marketplace example. They would go into the market, and they would take the, the outer fold of the, of the cloak and hold it out, and that is the place into which the grain would be poured. If I was buying grain in the market in Jesus' day, they'd fill up the outer fold, and I would take it home and I'd empty that into another pot or container there at my house. And the way that they measured it out was significant because kind of like cereal and cereal boxes, you know how they have that little statement on it that says caution contents may settle while shipping? What they're really saying is we're only going to give you three-fourths of what you think you're getting. Okay? But they would go into the marketplace, and these guys would take a, a container of some kind, scoop it into the vat, and if, if they were a, a, an honest businessman, they would shake it, and they'd scoop again, and shake it and scoop again until it was overflowing, and there were no gaps, and then they would press it down, and if there's still room on the top, they'd fill it up again and press it down until you had a full container, and then pour that into the lap. And Jesus is saying, if, if, you, if you invest in that way, if you invest kindness and grace, you're going to get a great return on your investment. If you pour out into others' lives, if you give like that, that's how it's going to be given to you. But if I invest in judgment, I'm going to be judged. And people are going to look at me. 
I wonder what's really going on with my heart and my motives. But Jesus pushes it further. He says something that, that I'm sure provoked a rumble of laughter in the crowd. It's one of the funniest things Jesus ever said. Verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the telephone pole out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, we've heard this before. This little teaching is often pulled out and, and talked about in other places. It's a great example it's a proverb, a parable that, that even non-Christian people use all the time. Take the log out of your eye if you want to see clearly to help me with my speck. But let's have a closer look at this. The Greek word for speck here is karpho. Karpho means literally a tiny, tiny, almost infinitesimal sized uh, twig or a little piece of wood small enough to be picked up and carried by the wind. So you're walking along on a breezy day and oh, something gets in your eye. And that's what it's talking about there, karpho. The log described here by Jesus, is dokos. And dokos means a beam or a plank of wood. Now, I'm not just telling you that for a Greek lesson, but it's significant that both the tiny bit of twig and the log are the same material. That the twig has its source in the log. They're both bits of wood. They're both pieces of wood. What are you saying? I'm saying they're the same thing. Because a thing I see in someone else that irritates me is often the very thing that is stuck in my own eye or in my own spiritual life. The thing that bugs me about you, the thing that I would judge you about, oftentimes is the very thing I'm struggling with deep down in my own motives. And Jesus says, you've got to deal with that stuff first. And if you're starting to see things in other people that irritate or concern you or bring up judgment in you, stop and ask yourself, is this an issue for me? Is this maybe something that I'm dealing with? Is there a log here I'm trying to see through to check out my brother's speck? Interesting, Jesus is talking about rushing to judge the same sin in other people that's ironically hidden in ourselves. He again uses that word hypocrite, which we know is defined, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it means a mask wearer or an actor. You mask wearer, he says? You actor? First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly. But hypocrite in the Greek also means a second face or two-faced. Now I'm going to look one way in one place and one way in another place. And God is calling, Jesus is calling His disciples to authenticity. Just to being real. That's not easy to do. It's so easy to put on the mask. We slide into the mask depending on who we're with or what group or or what situation we're in, before we even know it. Jesus says, take the mask off. He wants His citizens to be real. Okay, if Jesus wants me then to stop looking through the log, to, to remove the log, how do I go about doing that? Especially if I'm unaware really that it's even there. Because a lot of times we are unaware of it. If I don't know exactly what I'm doing, how am I supposed to get the log out of my eye? And the answer is, gang, that confession is log removal. Confession is log removal. It allows us to see our way clear. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. See, the mask wearer will try to fit the mask over the log so that nobody can see it. And they'll hide it, and they'll keep it there. 
And out of embarrassment, they don't want to let people know what's really going on in the heart. I don't want to share that with you. Because if you know that, then you might not like me very much afterward. 1 John 1, nine though, John said, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I had the most precious situation happen a few weeks back. One of the kids here in the, in the fellowship was up at our house for Sunday school. And, and uh, a couple weeks later, came to me on a Sunday morning, and he was just shaken. And there were big tears in his eyes. And, and his mom came up to me and said, can, uh, can we talk to you for a moment? I said, sure. And he came up and she said, he has something to confess to you. And I just had this picture right then. Of, I must have looked like a giant to him. You know? Yes, young man. You know, I mean, I must have just looked huge and menacing because he was just, you know. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out this, this little action figure that was about two inches big. And he holds it up and goes, I stole this from you. And I reacted, my action figure? I can't believe it. What's the matter with you? I, was, I wanted to play with this just last week. It was precious because he, he was so scared that I was just going to take him apart. I don't know where he got that idea. But this was part of the punishment. When his parents figured this out, they talked to me, no, you got to go to Pastor Rick and tell him what you did. And so he was just, oh, it was the end of the world for him. And, and I knelt down and we talked about it for a minute and we prayed together. And the moment, the moment we said amen, we were done. His mom goes, oh, okay, you can go. And he goes, and wiped his eyes and, and he just took off. And he was, you know, running around being a kid again. You know what I saw there? Confession removes the log. Confession removes the weight. We walk around not wanting to confess things because we're afraid, man, if I do, people are going to think badly or poorly of me. When the reality is the moment we do, we are refreshed. We're free of the stuff. And the reality is that we all have so much stuff that we're trying to carry around anyway. None of us are perfect. You younger people, when you get the, the older you get, the more you'll realize how unperfect, imperfect you really are. And the more you realize that, the more you tend to look at other people. It really goes one of two ways, I think, in our lives as we get older. Either we get more graceful or we get more bitter. We get bitter if we're hanging on to that stuff. But we get graceful if we learn that our Father forgives us. And we can release this. And if someone says, yeah, Rick, but I know what you did two years ago, I can go, yeah, me too. But it's gone. You can't tie that stuff to me. I've been forgiven. Well, while you're getting that log out of your eye, while you're confessing and being real with other believers, listen, and this is important, there is a place and a time when judgment is not only important, it's commanded. But Jesus says, don't judge and you will not be judged. But He's just about to tell us now, but there is a time and place where you need to judge. The place for judgment. Number one, the place for judgment. 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those... Do you not judge, he says, do you not judge those who are within the church? Wait a minute, are, are you saying we're supposed to judge in the church? Yes. Now follow me closely on this. Paul says, those who are outside, God judges. You remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul says there is a place where judgment is appropriate and it is within the church. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of judgment where we're just condemning brothers and sisters. But I'm talking about 
Judgment as in discernment. Where we are to judge rightly what's going on in the body. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And I believe the correct judgment Jesus is talking about here applies directly to citizens of the kingdom. Today that is the church. In the body of believers, we're told to carefully weigh and judge actions and doctrine, and that's important. We're not told to judge motives and intentions. That's not the place we're supposed to judge, but we are to judge actions and doctrine in the church body. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, and he said, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound teaching or sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, a constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Paul is declaring by the Holy Spirit that it is acceptable and right to make judgments in the church using the moral compass of Holy Scripture. That's part of the reason we have the Word, gang, and why we need to know the Word, because by the Word we can judge what's going on. We can judge what is being taught. Do you realize you are to judge and test everything that I teach when I stand up and open the Bible? Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, small group Bible studies, wherever. Anytime someone is preaching to you or teaching you about scriptural things, you have a responsibility to judge it against the veracity, the truth of scripture. We are supposed to discern against heresy. Jesus is going to talk quite a bit more about this a bit further down. We're supposed to check out the biblical accuracy of belief systems and programs and ideas as they crop up and pop up in the church. And you ought to know by now, they do constantly. There's always new stuff coming down the pipe. There's always a new author. There's always a new book. There's always a new idea and a new program. And a lot of it is very good. And some of it is inherently very bad. And we're told to judge it. To make decisions about it. To appraise things, as Paul said earlier, spiritually. What we are incapable of doing, however, is making right judgments of the heart. That is God's prerogative. He alone understands and knows the heart of man. We don't. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I'll tell you who can understand it. Jesus. The only man ever to walk the face of the earth who truly understood the heart of man. John 2.24 said, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Guess what? I don't. I have no idea what's in your heart right now. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what your intentions are. I don't know where you're going after this. I don't know where your mind is, is rolling about. I can't know. I used to pretend that I did. You know, as a pastor and in teaching, especially when I was teaching topical studies, and I believe I've shared before that I used to sit down and just labor over what it was that I needed to bring this congregation. What did they need to hear? What sin is going on that i got to go after? You know, what problem, what error do I need to fix? What hurts or heartaches are going on that, that I need to give the perfect words for? And man, nine times out of ten, I completely missed it. Which is one of the reasons I love so much just going through the Bible because then the Holy Spirit deals with you and I don't have to because I don't know what's going on anyway. 
I finally slid into that place where I understand being a pastor means being clueless. And I'm happy there. I don't know the heart of men. I'll tell you what, I can be deceived. I can be deceived in the positive and in the negative. I can judge someone's motives to be bad. I can look at Larry and say, what he's doing is an inappropriate and a negative thing. And I can be completely wrong. I can also look at Larry and say, oh, he's he's just doing a great thing. And I can be completely wrong. It's funny in the church when when sometimes we'll see revivals pop up, as, as one did recently. And people will flock to it. Only to find out later that the man leading the revival, as happened recently, falls to sexual sin. No one knew that was coming. Why? Because we're not good at reading motives and intentions. We can judge doctrine. We can judge behavior and actions. And in the church we are called to do so. But we are not called to judge each other's hearts. To make us... I don't look at Jim and say, I know what you're thinking, man. I know what's going on here. Meet me afterwards because we're going to deal with that. I think back to 2001, June 16th. President Bush stood side by side with Vladimir Putin. And he said, I looked the man in the eye and I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. I was able to get a sense of his soul. You think there might be some Georgians who disagree with that? Is it possible to be deceived as to the heart? Absolutely. Heart's a dangerous place, gang. Now, I'm not judging President Bush here. I'm just saying the heart is out of bounds for us. We're not to judge the heart, but we are to judge the motives, or not the motives, but the the actions, the behavior, and, and doctrines. So the place for judgment, there is a place for judgment in the church. And by the way, notice that the place for judgment is not outside the church. And we do a lot of judging of non Christians that we are not called to do. We are called to judge within the church. Outside of the church, our call is to love, not to judge. Now, once someone gives their life to Christ and comes into a fellowship of believers, yeah, we're to walk together and and encourage and counsel and judge the actions and doctrines and teaching. But until they've made that decision, it's not my place to look at someone and go, you know what, you really need to clean up your filthy life. No, it's my job to say, there's a better way and Jesus loves you and wants you home. So love for the outsiders And there is a measure of judgment for insiders. But not only is there a place for judgment, there is a time for judgment. Watch this, verse 6. Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine or pigs, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. These are strong words. Jesus is talking about a people who he's calling dogs and pigs right after he just said, Do not judge. Don't judge. Oh, by the way, don't, don't let a pig get a hold of your pearls. Make sure you don't give holy stuff to the dogs. I just heard a dog barking out there. That's funny. Don't do that. Jesus, I read this and I thought about it for a moment. That, that, those are strong words, especially in the culture. To call someone or to say that there are people who would be compared to pigs and dogs. Pigs who are completely unclean in Jewish culture. And we're not talking about cute little lap dogs. You know, all fluffy and... You know, you take care of them in the house. We're talking about scruffy, you know, garbage pail dogs. And Jesus says, don't give them those things. Jesus uses strong language like this from time to time. Don't be surprised to hear him say it. He called Herod Antipas that fox in Luke 13, 32. Not using fox like we do, you know, in our culture. 
as in she's a fox. He calls Herod that fox, as in this guy's crafty and wily. Watch out for him. He calls him that fox as a warning. In Matthew 23, 27, he called the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs. In Matthew 23, 33, he calls them a brood of vipers. These snakes. And in Matthew 23, 15, he even calls them sons of hell. Strong language. But you know something we learn about Jesus? He calls it as he sees it. He calls a spade a spade. He says, this is what it is. And I'm not going to paint it up and I'm not going to present it as anything other than what it truly is. He always spoke the truth. And he encourages his followers to do the same thing, to use the same wise judgment. I love this. Spurgeon once said, saints are not simpletons. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean now you're simple-minded. You are called to be wise. Jesus even said, be shrewd as the sons of the darkness. He said, they're more shrewd sometimes than the sons of light are. You're supposed to be wise. Wise as serpents, gentle as doves. These are all words from Jesus. So I want to know who he's talking about when he says pigs and dogs. And I think Peter knew. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, I could read you the whole chapter. I don't really have time tonight, so I'm going to pull out some verses just to give you a sense of these pigs and dogs that Jesus is talking about. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, False prophets arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Gang, don't miss that. Peter's talking about people in the church. He's not talking about outsiders. When he's talking about false prophets, false teachers, he's saying they even deny the master who bought them. Verse 2, he says, Many will follow their sensuality, which doesn't necessarily mean lust. It sometimes just means experience and feeling and, you know, flesh and soul stuff, their carnality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Skip down to verse 9. He says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires, and who despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, pigs and dogs, like unreasoning animals, they're born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And again, he is talking about people, false teachers, in the body. Weeds in the, in the wheat field. People who maybe even at one time had some sense of the truth or the goodness of God, but got caught up in the lies. He is not railing against the unbeliever here, but the false teacher and the false prophet. Skip down to verse 21. 
For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. The Holy Spirit has just given us the description of the pigs and dogs, I believe, that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. As if, you know, we, we weren't sure who are these pigs and dogs. He comes around and through Peter has it written down. Let me show you, let me tell you who the pigs and the dogs are. And then think again about what Jesus just said. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. They'll trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Be discerning. Be wise. Be wise in your judgment. Don't give holy things to dogs or pearls to pigs. And again, these pigs, these dogs, should have known better. Hebrews 6 verse 4 says, In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being accursed, and it ends up being burned. So, pigs and dogs, false teachers, false prophets, those who would malign the way of the truth after having known the way of the truth. But what are we not supposed to give them? Jesus says, don't give what is holy and don't throw your pearls Okay, so what exactly is that that we have to be careful not to share? What pearls are we talking about here? Scripture being a commentary on Scripture, can you think of something that a pearl describes? Matthew 13.45 Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon of the kingdom. These are kingdom principles. It is a kingdom focus. As he says, seek first the kingdom. And in Matthew 13, again, he says, the kingdom is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had, and he bought it. The pearl describes the kingdom. And you don't throw the pearl of the kingdom out there to be trampled on by dogs and pigs. Be wise. Be discerning. John Scott, in his excellent book, The Christian Counterculture, which is a commentary of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole book is. He said, If people have had plenty of opportunity to hear the truth but do not respond to it, if they stubbornly turn their backs on Christ, if, in other words, they cast themselves into the role of dogs and pigs, we are not to go on and on with them, for then we cheapen God's gospel of the kingdom. Can anything be more depraved than to mistake God's precious pearl for a thing of no worth? And giving someone up, especially someone who has been a fellow brother or sister in Christ, is a difficult thing to do. And it's something that takes judgment. It's serious business. You don't just turn around and, and immediately, you know, as I said before, wrongly judge the intentions of the heart. But when it's clear, when it's obvious that someone is walking in a destructive path you don't share the kingdom with them. There is a place, there is a time when you have to make that judgment. 
By the way, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge that you will not be judged, is one of the most misused and abused verses in the Bible. Jesus is not saying here that we are to be indiscriminate, that we're just to be blindly tolerant, universalist in our thinking. Don't judge anyone, just everybody be happy, do whatever you want. All roads eventually lead to the same end, right? All roads will get you there. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying don't be a fault finder. Don't be nitpicky. Don't be a scrutinizing condemner of other people. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. There's a time and a place for judgment in the body of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was stumbling across this and thinking it through, the first question that came up is, How am I supposed to know? I mean, if you're seriously saying that there's a time when I'm supposed to cast out, as Paul said, the wicked brother... If there's actually a time when I have to turn my back on a brother or sister in Christ who has gone off the deep end, how in the world am I supposed to know so as to make a right judgment and not to be wrong about that? Because heaven knows the last thing we want to do is be harsh and judgmental, kicking people out right and left. There'd be none of us left. Danny would be here all by himself. How do we know? Especially if I know I can't discern the heart of man. How am I supposed to know when it's right to judge? How do I know how to recognize dogs and pigs for who they really are? Here's where the spiritual gets practical, gang. Verse 7. Ask. It's so simple. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And this is not an evangelism verse. Because Jesus is not talking to non-believers. He's talking to disciples. He's talking about citizens of the kingdom. He's saying to you and to me, keep asking. Lord, I'm not sure what to do with this situation. Ask. Seek. Knock. And keep doing it. Don't stop. I love this. He wants us to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, that our judgments might be right and true. Not based on the flesh or the soul, but based in the Spirit. That we are spiritually appraising all things. Oh, Rick, are you really simple-minded enough to think that all you have to do is just pray about something and God's going to lead you and show you where to go? Yeah. That's exactly what I think. And it is so plain and so simple. Ask, seek, knock. And by the way, in the Greek, the, these three words, ask, seek, and knock, are, in, are the, in the present active imperative, which I know means a lot to, to all of us. Present active imperative, that's the tense, the voice, and the mood of these three words in the Greek. What does that mean? It means, literally translated, it's keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's not a one-time thing. It's an over and over. It is a process. It is the spiritual made practical. This is the paradigm for kingdom living. It's how we spiritually appraise all things. I keep asking. I get up in the morning. I'm not sure. I'm asking again. I'm seeking again. I'm opening up the Word and setting, going, okay, I, I see what they're saying. I want to make sure. So I'm seeking again. I'm knocking. Lord, I, I, I still don't have the answer. And I keep going back to the Father over and over and over. I don't stop doing that. It's a constant thing, gang. Jesus invites His citizen children to keep coming back to the Father. From verse 9, He says, What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? And in Luke, He says, how much will your Heavenly Father give His Spirit to those who ask Him? Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and God will keep giving His Spirit so that we can spiritually appraise all things, that we can make right judgments, not out of our heads, but out of the Spirit in our hearts, responding to all that we're asking. We're not in this on our own. Praise God, we walk on supernatural ground. We move and we think by supernatural power. We rely on His Spirit to discern what our flesh cannot. God is so good. This description here, I love this because what Jesus is doing is contrasting the fatherhood of man with the fatherhood of God. And He's saying, even in your weakness, even in your flesh, even as fathers, and we, we all, fathers who are here, we could all raise our hands, we have all messed it up royally many times over. And I'm admitting that in front of my daughter. I know I'm going to hear back about that later. <laughs> As fathers, we mess it up. But Jesus says, as messed up as you guys are, you still know how to take care of your kids, don't you? I mean, you still respond if there's a need. How much more your heavenly Father? How much more will God? And by the way, this is a word that Jesus uses 15 times in the Sermon on the Mount alone. He dared to call God Abba. Now that may not be significant to us because we call Him Father all the time. In fact, some of us call him Father too much. Father, 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 you know, in our prayers. It's just Father, this Father, that, and it's a constant Father thing. If you've watched Tim Hawkins, you've probably gotten a laugh out of that. <laughs> but I went back, and again, in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, there are only two times, two times in the entire Old Testament God is referred to as Father. Did you know that? Only twice. And both, both are tied to David. And God being Father in the line of David. Isaiah 9, 6, His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Abba, Prince of Peace. And that referring to Jesus, which shows us the close connection of Jesus, God the Son, and our Father, God the Father. He will be called Eternal Father, Abba. That's the one time. Second time is Psalm 89, 26, referring to David saying, He will cry to me, You are my Father, Abba. My God and the rock of my salvation. Everywhere else in the Hebrew Scriptures, he's Elohim, he's Adonai, he's El Shaddai. He's even called over and over the God of my fathers, but he's never called by the Jewish people Abba. Jesus is doing something absolutely radical here. When he says, your Father in heaven, your Abba. I remember the first time I heard a preacher call God Daddy, and it really bothered me. It did. I had never heard that before. And I thought, okay, he's got to be one of those liberal wackos in the left wing of the church or something to be calling God Daddy. How dare you? How dare you refer to the awesome Creator of the universe as anything less? I mean, okay, Father, but even that, you need to say kind of like Father. You know, you need to really make it distant. And you know what? Jesus comes along and on that grassy hillside says, hey, you're Abba. If you walk through the streets of Jerusalem today, you hear children. That's what they call their dads. Abba! Abba! I love it. It's one of the cutest things to hear in the world to hear a Hebrew child calling out Abba to his daddy. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And we don't even catch it. We've been going through now several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Haven't even caught it yet. But Jesus is doing something radical, wild. Had to have people shuffling on their grassy seats going, Is this okay? Did he actually say Abba? 
Because in all the Hebrew Scriptures, I only read it twice, and that was for David. That's not for me. And Jesus is saying, no, you're Abba in heaven. You're Abba. Sunday, we're going to look back at the prayer that Jesus prayed. The disciples' prayer, as we called it, which He opens up our Abba. And it's where He wants us to begin in relationship with God. So Jesus comes along and says, Your Father who's in heaven gives what is good, gives His Spirit to those who ask Him. And we could ask the question, well, did God just suddenly change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? And the answer is no, but we did. We did. John 1.12 says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So all this to say in making right judgments and in discerning all things with a spiritual eye. I think of that scene in It's a Wonderful Life. And you may remember this, where uh, George Bailey is a little boy, has, a, has an issue to deal with, he's not sure what to do, and he runs into, into the shop where he works. And he's trying to think of what to do, and he's, he's really concerned. And he looks up and there's a sign up there, and it says, Ask Dad, he knows. And I, I actually think of that sign often when I'm confused. Ask Dad, he knows. And you know what? I love my dad, but I don't pick up the phone and call him. I just pray, Abba. Abba, you know. I don't know what to do here. I don't know how to spiritually appraise things. So I'm going to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Abba, you know. Now we come to another statement in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus rolls on, that some have taken far too lightly and superficially. We even call it the golden rule. Verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, professors sit around pontificating and puffing their cigars and thinking about high-minded things. These so-called higher critics in the world today, specifically those of this thing called the Jesus Seminar that I've mentioned before, it's a think tank in Texas, where uh, these guys have sat around and basically reduced the teachings of, of Jesus down to one verse that they think is the only verse that we know he said. Everything else we don't, we're not really sure he even said. But one verse we're pretty sure he did say, the golden rule. This verse. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And those of the Jesus seminar would say, we're pretty sure that's what Jesus said, but we don't think he said anything else. And then you've got people who come along with that, And in liberal theology, they say, and, you know, truly, that's all we need to know. That's all we really need. We don't even need the rest of this stuff. All this New Testament stuff and Old Testament, all this Bible study. We don't need it. We just need the golden rule. That's all we need. That's all the church I really need. Really? Well, just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, if that's the only church you ever really need, guess what? You stand condemned. Because we can't even keep the golden rule, gang. I mean, think about this. Who here honestly wants to be treated exactly the way you've treated everybody else? Now, some of you might be okay. (laughs) I don't want to be treated the way I have treated other people. I don't want things done to me that I have done in my life to other people. And yet Jesus says, that's the standard, man. That is the gold standard. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Now again, the liberal theologians come along and they say, you know, Jesus just ripped off this teaching. Confucius said it 500 years before he did. The Rabbi Hillel was saying the same thing. Even some of the Greek philosophers, they were saying stuff like this. But listen closely. Jesus is the first one to put it in the positive context. Confucius did say, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. 
Rabbi Hillel said, don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. That philosophy had been rolling around for a while. Jesus was the first one to come out and say, treat people, do to others as you would have them do to you. It's a lot more actually being demanded there. It's not just avoid the evil, it's do the good. It's it's not just uh, avoid those bad things, it's give and love Ordinary men give ordinary human advice. Avoid the negative. Don't do bad things you don't want people to do to you. Jesus turns it around and reveals in this the nature of divine love, which is doing for others. Which is going out of your way to show unconditional love. Jesus' challenge is not to avoid the evil. It's to promote the love of Father God. That's far more difficult than just not doing bad things. I can pretty much avoid doing bad things to others, but when I have to start doing good things, well, that's when something is demanded of me. And here again in this impossible place, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. This so-called golden rule gang is not just a nice phrase hung out there by Jesus as a memory verse. It means so much more. And we need to take it in context. Jesus prefaced it with an all-important word. He said, In everything, therefore... In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. He's referring back to what he said previous. He's tying this to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He's tying this to the whole mentality of kingdom living and to spiritual discernment. Now listen, as we come down to the end of this sermon, Jesus begins to draw his listeners to a point of decision. Make a choice. Which kingdom are you going to enter He gives three final contrasting illustrations. Two gates, two trees, two foundations. Number one, two gates. A narrow gate and a wide gate. Verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus makes it clear there are two ways to go. There are two paths. One to life, one to destruction. One's narrow and sparsely traveled. The other is wide and traveled by the majority. Have you ever noticed the emphasis in our culture on broad-mindedness? That's exactly what Jesus says. Be broad-minded. You need to be more open-minded. And the whole idea of being narrow-minded is a bad thing. And yet... Isn't that what Jesus kind of calls us to? I'm not talking about intolerant judgment without thinking. But I am talking about discernment. Human nature loves the path of least resistance. Put me out on the freeway, man, where there's plenty of room for me to spread out and go as fast as I want to go. But those side roads, that's where it's a little more difficult. An age-old universal philosophy of every path leading to God. It sounds nice, but you've got to ask, did Hitler's path lead to God? How about Ahmadinejad's? There's a path. Is that one going to lead to God? Is that going to get you there? Did Saddam Hussein's path lead his people to God? How about Muhammad's? Is that path going to lead people to God? Jesus clarifies. He says, without hesitation, there's one way to life. One way. There are not many ways. I am the way, John 14.6, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It cannot be any more clear. And you know what most people think? Most people think most people go to heaven. And it's not true. It's a tragedy of human thought. 
According to Jesus, it's just not so. Luke 13.23, someone said to Him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus said to him, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And the picture there is a Judgment Day picture of people lined up as far as the eye can see, standing up there thinking they're going to get in, checking their list of good things and hoping it outweighs the bad. And that's Muslim theology. That's Islam. If the good outweighs the bad and you happen to catch Allah in a good mood, you might get in. Of course, then, even if you have a whole bunch of good works and only one or two bad, if Allah changes his mind, he may just boot you out. And this whole lineup, I mean, this is the picture of Jesus saying there are people who think they're getting in. Because they think they're good people. They're not getting in. It's not going to work. There's only one way in. And some people will protest, well, that's not fair. (laughs) Which cracks me up. What do you mean that's not fair? He built a bridge for you to get to the Father. He didn't even have to do that. He could have just given us this life and that's it. But He made a way for eternity. He made the path. Besides the fact, think about this, even if God were to provide 15 legitimate pathways to get to Him, the devil would still come up with 1,500 illegitimate pathways to confuse us. And so God, knowing the way we think, says, I'm going to keep it simple. You want life? Go through the sun. You don't have to overthink it. You don't have to have a degree in theology. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and I will save you. One way to life. 1 John 5.11 This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. And he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. How clear can it get? It's not confusing. It's unobstructed. A very clear choice. One path leads to the kingdom and one path to destruction. Choose your path. Make the choice. Then Jesus says, be warned. There are trees along those roads. (laughs) There are two trees here. Two trees. A fruitful tree and a poisonous tree. Verse 15. Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Where are the trees? There, Rick. I don't see those. We'll get to the trees. But gang... The trees are actually wolves in sheep's clothing. He's giving us now another animal. They're pigs, dogs, and wolves. And you've got to watch out for all of them. We already talked about this, discerning and judging truth and watching out for dogs and pigs. We have a new animal now, the wolf. And it's the wolf in sheep's clothing, which is the perfect picture for those Jesus talked about before for false prophets. They are wolves who will dress up like sheep. In fact, the word for false prophet here, the Greek word is pseudoprophetes. Pseudo-prophets. They look like prophets. They sound like prophets. They resemble something they're not. They look like truth, but ultimately they will tear you up and they will damage the sheepfold. Which is why sometimes the judgment has to be made to cast out, as Paul said, the evil man. There is a time where you have to say, you cannot be here anymore because you're doing damage. You're hurting people. And God doesn't abide that. Jesus says, and here come the two trees, verse 16, you'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And he's not talking about like a wormy apple. You know, He's talking about very distinct types of fruit. In fact, in the Middle East... There are these thorn bushes 
that can be found all around with, with a fruit on them. It looks kind of like a, a blackberry, maybe a little larger, resembling more of a grape, but it's a, a blackish-purplish color. Eat a few of these. They're called buckthorns. And if you eat a few of them, you're going to get sick. You eat a handful, you could die. And yet, if you don't know the difference between grapes and buckthorns, you might grab a handful of buckthorns, pop them in your mouth, and be in serious trouble. Jesus is saying, this thorn bush produces bad fruit. Watch out for it. It's poisonous. This bush produces good fruit. That's what you're to eat of, of the vine, the fruit of the vine. There's also thistles in Israel, which produce a, a fruit that resembles figs. Looks a lot like figs. Does the same thing. If you eat them, they also can make you sick. And so Jesus says, judge the fruit. Learn the genus of the species. These different plants, these wolves in sheep's clothing... False teachers will do the same thing to you, gang. They will make you sick, and they can make you die. Verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. I know I've said this a thousand times. Let's make it a thousand and one tonight. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. You want to know where someone's coming from. There's your judge. That's how to know. Someone's walking in the Spirit, they will bear the good and sweet fruit of the Spirit. Memorize that listing. There are nine of them. Look for those in any life, in anyone around you. In fact, let me give you three things under this, and these are real fast. Three ways that you can inspect fruit. Fruit inspections. To tell if someone is fruitful or poisonous, a character inspection. Character inspection. Look at the teacher's life. Look at the false or look at the prophet's life. To know if they're false or true. Look at their life. Do they practice what they preach? Do they walk the talk? Are they doing what they say they are doing? Or is there something that's just not right with their behavior versus their... They may be a great teacher, but if the behavior is not lining up, be careful. Character inspection. Second fruit inspection is a creed inspection. Examine what the teacher or prophet is teaching. Just because they use right words, still, you've got to test the doctrine. So character inspection, creed inspection, and number three, convert inspection. Look at their followers. Look at the people who follow after this individual, this, this so-called prophet or teacher. What is their behavior like? What are they acting like? How are they presenting themselves? And by the way, the influx of false prophets is one of the greatest indicators that we are in the last days today seems a week doesn't go by that I'm not hearing about some kind of false teaching. It just blows me away. I, I was either unaware a few years back or it's on the rise. But every time I turn around, there's a book with misleading theology. Every time I turn around, there's a man standing up saying, here's the way to go. And we've got to be careful that we don't just go rushing after without inspecting the fruit. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying don't read good books. I'm not saying don't listen to great teachers. There are lots of guys out there, lots of women out there, who are speaking truth. Listen to them, that's great. But inspect the fruit, their character, their creed, their converts. Look at these things and test it. That's all I'm saying. And then if it's all good, great. Learn from them. Especially as they preach Holy Scripture. Jesus doesn't say you're going to know them by their rhetoric. They may use the right words. Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! They may call you brother. They may even know verses and speak the right lingo. And the Christian rhetoric, they may 
sound a lot like us. They may be wolves who know how to go bah. They look and sound like sheep. How did I know? Inspect the fruit. Verse 21, Jesus says, For not everyone who says to me, and listen to this context here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, bah, bah. In the Greek it's kurios, kurios, my Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, my Lord, my Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there are going to be people coming along who know how to look like, act like, sound like sheep. They're prophesying. They're casting out demons. They're performing miracles in Jesus' name. And they're false prophets. How are we supposed to know, Lord? You spiritually appraise all things. You test everything. You look for the fruit. And if the fruit is good, the tree is good, listen to them. And if the fruit is bad, gang, a good tree does not produce bad fruit. Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul is leaving Ephesus. And he says to the elders gathered there as he's making his way out, his very tearful departure, and he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert." Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. From within. That's the scariest thing about this. We're not talking about weirdos on the outside trying to attack the church. We're talking about people on the inside that you thought you could trust. And I put myself in that category and I will continue to do that. You test everything that you hear coming out of my mouth. And you call me on it if it's not biblical. Okay, that's our agreement, right? You still checking? You still testing? Okay. Test less, too. I don't want to be alone in this. <laughs> Here's the thing, gang. Jesus gives the ultimate test for heavenly citizenship now in one phrase, one phrase alone. He says, verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. And that's it. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why? Because I didn't know you. You said my name. You did all these things. You even called me Lord, but I didn't know you. In other words, there was no relationship. When was the last time we spent time together? When did we just walk together? Relationship, relationship, relationship. And people say, Rick, how do I really know that I'm saved? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? You're saved. Relationship. Jesus said in John 10.14, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? That's what He's looking for. Well, the crescendo of this great orchestral movement of the Sermon on the Mount, it concludes, this most beautiful sermon I believe ever preached, reaches a triple forte as Jesus concludes with two foundations, one of stone, one of sand. Verse 24, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall. Why, Jesus? For it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. I watched the foundation for my house get poured and it blew me away how big that thing was how deep it went and how thick the concrete was and I remember walking on it before we framed or anything walking on that foundation and just going wow do we really need all this concrete you know I didn't know the guy could have doubled the amount of concrete I would have paid for it I wouldn't have had a clue but it was this big huge solid thing and it, it made me feel good as a homeowner, especially on kind of a, a rocky hillside, and when we get the wind and the rain and the storms here on Whippy Island, as a homeowner, it's nice to know, I remember on windy nights, I remember that foundation down there. I know if the framing all blows away, at least my bed has a solid place to, you know, to land. And Jesus says, that's, that's the deal. If you hear these words and act on them, James says, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word then you're going to stand. We act on His words by faith in the foundation and the Scriptures are clear. Jesus Christ is the foundation. 2 Corinthians 3.11 No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Later on in Matthew 16, and we'll come to this, Jesus asked His disciples, Who do men say that I am? Peter blurts out, out of his spirit, by the way, he blurts out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, how do you know he blurted that out of his spirit? Because Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah. You didn't figure that out on your own. My father told you that. The spirit told you, revealed that to you. But Jesus goes on to say, And on this rock I will build my church. You are Peter, pebble. Rocky. You know, little guy. But on this rock, Petra, the big rock, on this rock I'll build my church. What rock, Jesus? The rock which is the foundation of Jesus Christ Himself. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are the Son of the living God. You're the rock. That's the foundation, Jesus. And Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation Firmly placed. Now listen, it says, He who believes in it will not be disturbed. In other words, you're secure. That Hebrew word for disturbed there is kush. Kush. It means hurried or agitated. And he who believes in this stone, this foundation, this rock, you're not going to be hurried. You're not going to be agitated. You're not going to be Disturbed. By the way, notice that for both houses, the one that has a foundation and the one that doesn't, both of them get slammed by storms. Both experience the high winds and the raging rains. And storms reveal the substance of our faith, gang. You wonder why sometimes in our lives we have to go through these hard times. When we go through the storms, they reveal what we believe. They show the foundation for what it truly is. If you right now are in the midst of a storm. And it could look like anything. It could be a financial storm. It could be a a relationship storm. It could be of any kind. If you're in the midst of a storm, understand, it is proving your faith. Because storms reveal the substance of our faith. 
Storms are going to come. They're going to rage against the foundation. And if my foundation is a man, like Peter, <laughs> tell you what, that, that would unnerve me if, if, if I had to base my faith on Peter. If my foundation is a false teaching, if my foundation is my church, boy, I hope your foundation is not the Bridge Christian Fellowship. If it is, you're in trouble. This barn could blow down tomorrow. This church could bust apart. And you know, doesn't it happen? Doesn't it happen in Christianity where churches split and men fight and thrive against each other? And the most tragic thing in a church split is when people lose their faith because of it. Man, it's, it's bad enough when brothers divide and split up and unity is broken. But at least if through all that people end up still clinging to Jesus Christ. But my heart breaks when we see splits and we've all seen them where people just say, well, I'm done with that. You know why they say that? Their foundation was not in Jesus. It was in their church. That's not my foundation. My foundation is Christ Jesus alone. And if the foundation is Jesus, man, when the storm comes, bring it on. Because my foundation will not fail. I will not be disturbed. Wow. When Jesus had finished these words... The crowds were amazed at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Of course He was. Of course He was because He's the King. He's the King. Let's pray together. Lord, I just ask that You will continue to teach us to spiritually appraise all things. May we be a people, Father, who keep knocking Keep asking, keep seeking. Keep coming to You, our Father, and asking You, and silently listening for Your response. A people founded on the rock who is Jesus. Lord, we thank You. Jesus, I'm blown away by this great sermon. I find myself wanting to go back to chapter 5 and review the whole thing again. Maybe we will for the next several weeks, I don't know. But Jesus, thank You for being so good to us. Thank You for speaking Your Word, both in the written form, but also, Holy Spirit of of the living Christ, thank You for speaking into our hearts like You do. For not leaving us orphans, but really treating us as, as children. Every one of us, Lord, adopted into Your family. And, and so we have a... We have our Father we can cry out to. We have the Spirit speaking to us. We have the Son encouraging us. So we want to walk as citizens of the kingdom. And we pray, Lord, Your supernatural power to do so. And we praise You and worship You in all Your perfection. Just saying, thank You, Jesus, for Your mercy and Your grace. In Jesus we pray. Amen.